As I read our opening scripture this morning, it's from Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Pray with me. Father, we praise you for your righteousness and the peace and joy that you offer to us through your Son. Forgive each of us for the times we've selfishly judged others, fracturing the unity of our church body. May we grow this morning in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michael. Michael also serves as a member of our elder team, so if you get a chance, just say hello. Thank you. Thank him for uh, serving as a leader in this church. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Romans 14 and 15. We will mainly actually be in Paul's summary statement in 15, 1 through 6, but we're going to reach back into 14 where Paul's statements in 15 overlap. I recently watched the movie Chariots of Fire. Finally... After 40 years, yeah, finally. Uh, I did not watch it in 1981. I was 10 at the time and did not care about the movie. So I will confess that I just recently watched it over the Christmas season. Um, And it's based on the true story of Eric Little, a devout Christian who was raised by Scottish missionaries to China. Little was a sprinter in the 1920s who famously viewed his running and winning as bringing great glory to God. Due to his strong convictions, as the story goes, he refused to run in the Olympic 100-meter dash because it fell on a Sunday, which he viewed as the Sabbath. He chose instead to, complete, uh, to compete in the 400-meter race that very next Thursday with little hope of winning. No chance, really. The movie focuses on his moral co- courage his perseverance despite the criticism and pressure he received, and his triumph. He actually won the 400-meter race he wasn't supposed to win. And I thought there were a few things that were kind of weird about the movie. First of all, it's set in the 1920s, but it has this weird synth-pop 80s score, right? So that was kind of weird. And, and I got all that, you know, like I got everything the movie was trying to tell us. This man has great, strong courage in the face of opposition, but I saw the movie just a little bit differently. In the first place, it occurred to me that his commitment to the Sabbath, which he viewed on Sunday, was actually wrong. Sunday is never referred to either in the Old Testament or the New Testament as the Sabbath. So in an attempt to keep the Sabbath on a Sunday, technically he actually broke it because it's on a Friday evening and Saturday evening. Moreover, the Sabbath is the only commandment of the Big Ten in Exodus 20 that is not repeated or recommanded in the New Testament. It's not reissued to the people of God in the New Testament. 
In addition to that, we don't have any examples of New Testament believers meeting or gathering on Saturday, Friday or Saturday. Instead, they gather on the first day of the week, which was the day Jesus was raised, and that for a very practical reason, because they used the synagogues initially, and the synagogues were already in use by their fellow Jews. In addition to that, Paul explicitly forbids Christians from judging others or being judged by their observance of this particular holy day. Colossians 2.16, he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regards to food and drink, that's kosher, festival observance, that's the Jewish calendar of festivals, or the observance of Sabbath. No one should judge you or look down on you because you obey or you don't obey those laws. That's what Paul is saying there. Likewise, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 spiritualizes the Sabbath. All believers now have entered a rest, an eternal rest. And the day of entering that rest is the day Jesus died for you and redeemed you from the curse of the law and the curse of sin. And now as a believer, you are eternally in a state of rest from the burden of carrying your own sin. Sabbath. Every day. All day. So I couldn't help but watch the movie through the lenses of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which is a parallel passage to Romans 14 and 15. It's almost exactly the, dis, the, the same discussion. And I thought to myself, you know, despite Little's sincerity, which category would he belong in in Romans 14 or 15 or 1 Corinthians 8 through 10? Would he be the weaker brother whose conscience was constrained by a non-essential and a debatable matter? Or would little be considered the spiritually stronger believer who knows and is persuaded, like Paul, that he is under no biblical constraint not to compete or to compete on a Sunday? And I think my answer would have to be that despite his apparent piety on the matter, his undoubted sincerity, his undeniable courage of his convictions, he is in fact, in Romans 14 and 15, the weaker brother. Not weak in character, not weak in courage, weak in conscience on this matter. And last week, Pastor Patrick helped introduce this passage to us in Romans 14. Paul gives instructions to all, both the spiritually strong and the spiritually weak, the spiritually immature. For the legalist, whose conscience is weak on debatable issues of dietary laws and Sabbath observance and festival days and circumcision, this person might be tempted to question the genuineness of someone's faith who doesn't share their convictions on this issue. Conversely, the spiritually strong believer might look down on the legalist and question the genuineness of their faith whose conscience is bound on the matter. And they also might carelessly flaunt their freedom to the detriment of those who are growing, who are coming along. And so for both camps, Paul prescribes three things. We just read it. Michael just read it to us in that passage in Romans 14. He prescribes three things. Don't judge each other. Like no matter what, don't judge each other. To the weak, to the strong, I say don't judge. Number two, don't do anything intentionally or unintentionally, to put a stumbling block, or an obstacle, or an obstruction, what you laughing at, (laughs) to the the growth of believers. Number three, don't, don't do anything to tear down what God is building up. 
(laughs) Don't do anything to destroy what God is building. And that should be the atmosphere of the church. So he says those three things to the weak and the strong. Paul's message is clear. As Christian believers, we are called to live in harmony with one another, even when we have different convictions and preferences around debatable issues. We should respect each other's differences and make every effort to build one another up in the faith. Now he turns, however, to the strong. In his very particular direction to the strong. So if you consider yourself leaning toward liberty on these matters rather than legalism, And having a weak conscience on these matters, Paul wants to say, here are my instructions to those of you who consider yourselves strong. Number one, those who are strong in the faith are obligated to help the weak. Those who are strong in the faith are obligated to help the weak. Verse 1, chapter 15, he says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves, each one of us is to please or prefer his neighbor for his good, to build that neighbor up. So a couple of points of clarification here. Bearing the weakness does not just mean to tolerate. Now, it does mean that. In other passages where that phrase is used in the New Testament, it does mean to tolerate or put up with. Right? He tells people, put up with each other. So it does mean that, but it means more in this particular context. It means bear up with the weak, and help them along toward liberty. Help them along toward spiritual maturity on this issue. And then when he says each one should please his neighbor, he doesn't just mean become a people pleaser. Do whatever makes them happy. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is don't allow, don't insist on your preferences such that you damage the faith of a weaker believer. Those who are immature in the faith or immature on a particular issue, those of a weaker conscience in these matters. Now, Paul clearly in chapters 14 and 15 sides with the strong. Chapter 15, 1, again, he says, now we who are strong. Back in chapter 14, 14 and 17, he says, I know and I am persuaded. I know this. I am persuaded of this beyond the peradventure of a doubt in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in of itself, that is food. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Who thinks that? The weaker brother does. But righteousness, righteousness by faith, peace, reconciliation by faith, and joy and freedom in the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8. Who's in that camp? The spiritually strong who knows that the kingdom of God is not a matter of dietary laws, it's not a matter of Sabbath observance, it's not a matter of these marks of Judaism. The stronger believer knows that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and power in the Holy Spirit. Now, this was a lot for Paul to say this, wasn't it? Because Paul is not just some garden-variety Jew sitting there in synagogue who's just Torah observant. No, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul came from the Pharisaic wing of Judaism. And in the first century, there were four or five. You have the Sanhedrin, or you have the Sadducees. You have the Pharisees, you have the scribes, you have the zealots, and then you have the Essenes who live out in the desert in Qumran. And so one of the strictest sects, not quite as strict as the Essenes, but one of the strictest groups within Judaism 
ever was the Pharisees. And so for Paul to say, listen, I know this. I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that these things really are not as important as you think. For him to say that about his dietary laws that are right there in Torah and the traditions that he's received from the Pharisees would be very, very difficult to comprehend how a person could could make that change unless he had a direct revelation from the Lord. And he says, I do. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ that I know this. I know it in Jesus. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. Now here he's not saying to the strong. He's not saying, don't, don't let what's good for you be, <laughs> we could be tempted to read it that way. He's not saying, well, some of this is good for you, but the other stuff is really good for them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is good. It is good to be brought and carried along in your maturity in Christ to liberty, away from legalism. It is good. But don't allow your good to be slandered He says, to be disparaged or smeared by the spiritually weak as you flaunt your liberty in front of them. Verse 20, don't tear down what God's uh, God's work because of food. Everything is cleaned, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. Do you remember that story where Peter was called to the household of Cornelius? Do you remember how he got that call in the book of Acts? He's sitting there praying on a rooftop in Jaffa, And as he's praying, all of a sudden he goes into a trance and he sees a sheet let down from heaven and all of these unkosher animals fall out on the sheet and he hears a voice from heaven saying, go, kill, eat, it's breakfast time. And he says, never. And then he hears the voice again, go, kill, and eat. And he says, no way. I have been a Torah-observant Jew from my youth, and I'm not about to eat camel steak. I'm not about to eat shellfish or crab. I'm not going to eat that stuff. And then he hears a voice from heaven say, don't call anything that I've made unclean. And Luke says, with that, God declared all things clean. So we do have a revelation directly from God himself that those foods are now not to be considered unclean. Chapter 15, verse one, again, he says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weakness of those uh, who are without strength and not to please ourselves. He puts himself again in the category of those who are strong, we who are strong. And then, if I may bring his instruction to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says, everything is permissible, sure. In the Christian life, you have liberty, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, he says, but not everything builds up. In the private exercise of my personal liberty, I can do so with good conscience, but not everything that I'm free to do at home is beneficial nor builds up the body of Christ. That's what he's saying there. Those who are strong in the faith are obligated to gently bring the weak along, bring them from legalism to liberty. On this matter, number two, and Christ is our example. Jesus is the example. Verse three, he says, for even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now here in that context, that's a quote from the Old Testament applied to Jesus during his death, during his torture. 
Verse seven, therefore welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you to the glory of God. So Paul wanted them to imitate Christ in putting others first and we are to die to ourselves for the sake of the weak in conscience for the building up of the body. And we're to be a welcoming, gracious, truth-telling community. I'll say that again. We are to be a welcoming, gracious, truth-telling community. Just like Jesus. And Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians chapter five. Here's what he says in verses one and two. He says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, God's children, and walk in love. Live in such a way as you walk in love so Christ, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. He says, imitate God and here's how you imitate God. You follow Jesus. And what's Jesus' example? Love. And how did he display his love on the cross? He displayed it as a fragrant offering. In other words, the Christian lifestyle, the Christian life is to be characterized by cruciform love. That is a love that is formed after the cross. A love that is formed in the shape of Jesus dying on the cross for others. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21, for you will call to this because Christ also suffered with you, for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What steps should you follow? Christ, what did he do? He died. He died for the ungodly. Christ suffered essentially in three ways according to Philippians 2. He suffered obscurity. The God of heaven God the Son was found in appearance as a man, and he was raised in Nazareth, backwater, middle of nowhere, Nazareth. And so the glorious creator of the universe was found in appearance as a man. Jesus suffered the indignity of condescending. Jesus suffered the indignity of becoming like us, one of us. And he suffered ridicule and rejection by the super-religious. Can you imagine how heartbreaking it was for Jesus to go to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and go to those towns and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and then later for them to just, just to say, thank you for the healing, thank you for the miracles, we're good. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that was for Jesus? Jesus suffered the ridicule of the super-religious, but he also suffered the rejection and the, the apathy of those who did not receive his message. And of course, he suffered death. Jesus suffered torture to the point of death, dying as a fragrant offering for our sins. And so the Christian life is supposed to look like this. It's supposed to be following Jesus. Now, between Jesus' advent and his ascension, we, we celebrate his advent during Christmas, the Christmas season, his coming, and we celebrate his ascension on Resurrection Sunday. We'll be celebrating that in e April. And we tend to forget that between those two events in his life, he lived an entire life. And what kind of life did he live? Dying. What kind of life did he live? Giving. What kind of life did he live? He lived a life that was in sacrificial love and service to others. And we're to follow him in that life and follow his example in death. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to understand that following Christ is, following his example is inconvenient. It's inconvenient. Have you figured that out yet? 
Is there anything convenient at all about following Jesus? He put it this way, Luke 9, 23. Then he, Jesus, said to them all, all of his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, come follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake because of me will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Following Jesus is not convenient. A couple of Fridays ago, we had about 300 people around tables eating Mexican food in this place. About 300 of you showed up, and you were here on a Friday night to eat food uh, and support the Mexico missions trip for our students. And that was awesome. I sat in the back over there and I just watched people enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and enjoy each other's fellowship in the Lord. And then we raised something, was it $36,000, something like that? You guys gave that much so that some kids, some students can go and pour out their hearts. And believe me, I've been on that trip. That is not a vacation. That's a hard trip. They're working at, Ryan works them like slaves. <laughs> And I saw the itinerary. Apparently, it's not changing. <laughs> but it was such a blessing to be in here and see so much support from this congregation. Listen, it's not convenient to give $36,000 to missions so that our students can go down there and pour their lives out for others. That's not convenient, and that's the example we're talking about here. We're talking about following Jesus, and it never quite fits into our lifestyle. And it takes on a practical shape in the life of the church. It also takes on a practical shape in our families. Think about it. The laboratory of following Jesus, of working it out, is in the family, in your marriage, in your relationships with family, and in the life of the church. Next, following Christ's example takes discipline. It just does. Uh, the author of Proverbs says this in chapter 6, verse 23, for a command is a lamp, teaching is a light. And corrective discipline is the way to life. The path to victory is always first to conquer thyself. That's what Plato said, and he was right. The path to victory is always first to conquer thyself. Is there anything that you've become good at that you first didn't have to master you? Anything you want to get good at. I don't care what it is. Playing violin, playing a musical instrument, uh, getting good at computers, computer programming, whatever it is, if you want to get good at it, before you master that thing, you got to master you. you got to master your time and get up early in the morning and put discipline into your life. And so Christians with a renewed mind and the Word and the Holy Spirit have the capacity to master themselves in a way that no one in the world can. Along the way, we will be tempted. Were you tempted last week? Along the way, we will have bouts of laziness. I had a bout of laziness this last week. Along the way, we will fail. But we choose to pick ourselves up and persevere and keep moving and persist. And as we do that, we build discipline, the Christian discipline of serving the Lord into our lives. So let's get practical. If you've developed the habit of being obnoxious or pugnacious and judgmental, and you're a person who just, you can't help but share your opinion about everything, 
and crash into people's conversations or into their lives with your wisdom, right? If you have, understand that God's intention for you is for you to learn how not to flaunt your liberty and just crash into other people, to bring them along to maturity, to help them. And if you tend to enjoy your Christian freedom at the expense of the weaker brother, flaunting it to their detriment, you need to follow Jesus, which is always inconvenient and always requires self-control, not self-indulgence. So here's a good question. Here's a good metric. Here's a really good metric. Does the expression of my Christian liberty on any debatable issue look like Jesus dying on the cross? Does that look like Jesus on the cross dying for other people? And if the answer to that is no, not a good idea. Number three, the, scripture, the scriptures provide examples of Christ's self-giving love. Verse four, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. So not only do we have Jesus's model, not only do we have Jesus as the pattern that we follow, we also have all the stories in the Old Testament which now illustrate the self-giving love of Christ. Isn't that great? You could go back to the Old Testament and, and it will push you forward to Christ. And so the byproduct of studying and knowing the scriptures here is endurance and encouragement, and we need both. So let me give you just a few quick principles to put into practice of how this works. First of all, the Old Testament provides examples of overcoming or enduring faith. The Old Testament provides so many examples of overcoming and enduring faith. Paul tells the Corinthians this very thing. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, 6, he says, now these things, that is, the stuff I was just talking about, he's pulling all the stuff out of Torah and their, their wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. And he says, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Those stories provide us with examples of enduring faith. And the writer of Hebrews wants to say the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 11, he gives us so many examples. He says Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses, the judges, the prophets and the prophetesses. All of them preserve, persevered by faith. And here's his summary of that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since we also have such a large, large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Jesus is the pioneer and he's the perfecter. He started the whole story and he's finishing it. And in between are all these amazing examples of people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that you and I can look to to say that's what enduring faith looks like. That's what it looks like to endure. The Old Testament provides principles of wisdom. Principles of wisdom. And we need to exercise good judgment how we, in how we raise our kids, how we manage our resources how we serve God in the Christian life together. 
And the Old Testament provides lots of examples of how to act wisely and counterexamples of how not to act wisely or how, uh, what to avoid. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says this, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, the Bible, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So you and I don't only need a, 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 a saving message from the Bible. We need a message from the Bible that actually gives us wisdom. We need, we need to add wisdom to our salvation. And the Old Testament serves the purpose to instruct us in paths of wisdom, namely to give us lots of examples of people who acted wisely and people who didn't act wisely. Just to give you one example, we're going to be doing this sermon series right after the Roman series, and it's going to be through First and Second Samuel. We're going to go back and look at the life of Samuel and Saul and David, and we're going to be pulling out of those stories lots of examples, lots of principles of wisdom for the Christian life. And isn't it interesting that you have this person, David, who made great choices. There is no doubt. You guys know the stories. You know that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who pursued God's very heart in all things. And when he slays that giant and brings him down, that the author of Scripture wants us to know that's a good thing. That's what enduring faith looks like. That's what overcoming faith looks like. But when he's up on his roof and he's looking over the rooftops and he sees Bathsheba, his good, the, the wife of his good friend Uriah, and he desires her and commands that she be brought to him and then he sleeps with her and then kills Uriah to cover it up in that story, that's an example. The author wants you to know that's not good. Yeah. On the good, bad scale, that's super bad. So don't do that, right? Don't do that. And so the Old Testament is full of examples like this. We can go back and say, okay, yes, the author wanted me to know. Follow this person's example. Don't follow this person's example. And we need discernment to see it. The Old Testament also foreshadows Christ in the Christian life. Have you ever been reading the Old Testament? And you come across a story. I'm I'm working my way through Genesis right now. And as I'm working my way through Genesis... I I can't tell you how many times I've stopped and thought, that's the Christian life right there. Isn't that amazing? Such an old story about people who lived so long ago, thousands of years ago, still relevant in the 21st century. Isn't that an amazing book? It's because the issues of the heart and the issues of life, they never change. They're always the same. And so the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus' coming. It not only foreshadows Christ, but it foreshadows the Christian life, life in Christ. And I think here of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is no direct prophecy other than the two prophets that show up to give them a very immediate prophecy about, you know, the rebuilding of the temple. But when you go back and you read those stories, it is just amazing to see how many Christian principles are in those those stories. It's amazing. And you go back and you read, and here's Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is a priest. He's a scribe. He's a very well-to-do person in Persia. He's a higher up. And Nehemiah also is an official. Now, they both could live out the rest of their lives with good-paying government jobs. They're not going to get rich, uh, but they're going to live out the rest of their lives in in, uh, a fair amount of comfort and ease. But they don't do that. 
Instead, what did they do? They, they are the first ones to sign up to take the people back to Israel and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And if you read that story, it's so hard. There are moments when Ezra and Nehemiah essentially cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? It's just amazing to see how the life of Christ and the Christian life plays out in those stories and pushes forward to Christ. We're, we're going to see that in the stories of Samuel and Saul and David in the coming months. But the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. It foreshadows the Christian life, the life of self-sacrifice, the life of self-giving and service. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the Romans in chapter 15, 14 and 15. Jesus is your example. And we also receive hope as the byproduct of the encouragement and endurance that comes from the Bible, that comes from the scriptures. The Bible provides lots of Christ-centered examples and principles and prophecies and foreshadowing that brings so much comfort and encouragement to our lives. And so these last two sentences become a blessing. They're not so much commands or a prayer as they are a benediction. And here's how he finishes it. He says in verses five and six, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement, it comes from God, grant you, gift you, to live in harmony with one another. That's been his goal all along. According to Christ Jesus, according to the pattern and the model of Jesus' self-giving, cruciform love, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. And so a unified church where the spiritually strong bear the burdens of the weak, helping them along toward Christian maturity from legalism to liberty and do it thoughtfully and carefully and spiritually. That's what Paul's after. That's what God is after with us, amen? Wouldn't a church like that look really amazing? Well, I'm glad you agree. Let's pray. Call the worship team back up. Father in heaven, we thank you for this blessing. We thank you for the blessing that as we live according to these principles, that your blessing would reside on us. And we do pray for unity. We know that unity is hard won, it's hard hard fought, but we also thank you that you grant it to us. You give us this as a gift. We thank you for the gift of endurance. We thank you for encouragement, the encouragement of the scriptures and the encouragement and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So Father in heaven, we just want to come to you this morning and, and commit ourselves to helping those who are weaker in the faith, who are having trouble letting go of some of the old ways helping to move them along toward Christian liberty. God, would you give us patience and endurance? Help us to be careful and thoughtful. And Lord, we thank you for giving us Jesus as our example, Jesus Christ, who hung on that cross and gave himself for us, who lived a life of sacrificial love for others. And would you make us look like Jesus? Would we be good at imitating God by following Christ's example, giving our lives as a fragrant offering to God. And we thank you so much for the word, so much for the scriptures that provide so many principles and examples. God, we pray that we would be able to just read and study and dig deep wells in God's word and then metabolize that truth into our system, into our bloodstream and live it out. Help us do it, Lord. 
And we pray that you would just bless this place with unity and endurance and encouragement in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen. Thank you.